If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to Deuteronomy chapter 16 as we begin in verse 8. Chapter 16 is about the three pilgrim festivals called in Hebrew Shlosh Regalim. Shlosh means three, Regalim means feet. Three times they had to walk up to Jerusalem. And we started the discussion of Passover last week. Verse 5 says, you may not sacrifice the Passover with any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, which means you must take it up to Jerusalem to sacrifice the Passover lamb. We pick up in verse 8, where it says, six days you shall eat unleavened bread. Why? What does leaven picture in bread? Sin. sin, because sin permeates just as a little yeast in the dough just permeates through the loaf. And when Israel had to leave Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry, right? They didn't have time to leaven the bread and let it rise. So the bread baked as they were walking through the hot desert sun. So eating the unleavened bread for the six days... What's that picture? If the unleavened bread pictures Messiah, there are six days from creation till the day of the Lord. How long has Messiah been with us? The entire time he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Absolutely right. But what about the seventh day? It says that on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So the first day of unleavened bread is a high Sabbath, no work to be done. The seventh day of unleavened bread is a high Sabbath, no work to be done. Is, is, there, is there an exception for food preparation? There's an exception on the first day for food preparation because you must prepare for the Passover Seder. You must roast the lamb in fire. You must prepare the other items that go with it. So yes, God makes a special exception for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day is not a The first day of Unleavened Bread is the High Sabbath. The day before it, which is Passover, the day is not. you're calling it, is, on, is not a Sabbath. It's I'm not sorry? A weekly Sabbath. It's, 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 a, it's a high Sabbath. It's a, it's a time appointed, one of the more deemed of God. Yeah, but let's hear Mike's. On Passover day itself, that's the day you can... You can prepare what you're going to eat, but the first, the, that day is not a Sabbath. The fourteenth day is not a Sabbath, the day that you kill the lamb. And, and that's the day you're supposed to prepare it, right? That's the day it says you can prepare it. It says on the first day of unleavened bread you can prepare what must be done. Because they killed the lamb at 3 p.m. on Thursday, on, on Passover, mm -hmm. and now how long does it take to roast the lamb? You got to get it home. You got to get it prepared. You got to get roasted. The roasting continues into the first day of unleavened bread. Okay. <laughs> well, but you don't dress it. You, you roast it whole. Hang on, hang on. And everything, right? Well, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Exodus 12, 16. Would answer that question. Okay. Could you clarify Mike's question for me, please, so I can follow the rest of this? All right. Thank you. Mike's question is, on the 14th day of the first month, which is Passover, the day you killed the lamb, okay. you're allowed to prepare the meal, but it's not a Sabbath day anyway. 
And his objection is, I say, the first day of unleavened bread, you continue to prepare the meal. And he's questioning that. Okay, yeah. So we'll go to Exodus 12 and then to Leviticus 23. Exodus 12 gives us the original instructions on Passover. In verse 16 it says, On the first day, that's the first day of unleavened bread, there should be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there should be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared for you. So that's why I was making that comment. And then in Leviticus chapter 23, let's look at the instructions on Passover in it. Where is that again? Leviticus 23. All the appointed times of the Lord are encaptured in one chapter in Leviticus chapter 23. We'll start in verse 4. These are the feasts, but the word is not feast. The word for feast in Hebrew is chag. This is moed, which is an appointed time. So these are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, that is a gathering together to rehearse, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. It has become the custom in many Messianic congregations today to say, well, it falls in the middle of the week, oh, let's just put the Seder off until the weekend, because it's more convenient. The Bible doesn't say, do it on a day that's more convenient, it says, at their appointed times. Because they teach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah if you do it at their appointed times. So verse 5 says, On the 14th day of the first month at twilight, but the Hebrew says, Bain Ha'aravim, which is halfway between noon and 6 p.m., therefore 3 p.m. What time did Messiah die on the 14th day of the first month? 3 p.m. So what time are you to kill the lamb for 1,500 years before Messiah is born? 3 p.m. What was that word? Ha-Eravim. Ha-Eravim. A-R-A-V-I-M. Eravim. Some people would spell it E-R-E-V-I-M, but the A's are actually more appropriate there. So verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation mm -hmm. You shall do no customary work on it. So that's a high Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So it is also a high Sabbath. This year, in 2023, the first day is the 6th of April, which is a Thursday. And the seventh day is the 12th of April, which is a Wednesday as we start thinking about what days should we take off from work, except for those of us who are retired who just don't work anyway. Okay. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Verse 8, six days you shall eat unleavened bread. Wait a minute, didn't we just read seven days? But now we're going to talk about the seventh day. You don't eat unleavened bread on it either. But God just separated it out in this verse. On the seventh day, there should be a sacred assembly. The word sacred assembly there means a concluding assembly. You bring it to an end. To the Lord your God, you shall do no work on it. And then we change gears 
in verse 9. Oh, wait a minute. I better start looking up here at my notes. Verse 9 begins the discussion of the Feast of Weeks, or in Hebrew it's called Shavuot. It's also called Yom HaBikarim, which is Feast of First Fruits. There are two first fruits, holy days. The day in which Messiah arose is first fruits of the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks is first fruits of the wheat harvest. So it says in verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. Meaning the more he's blessed you, the more you bring. The less he's blessed you, the less you bring. Which do you want? You want God to bless you more. Verse 11 says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, who's the stranger? That's the non-Jew who wants to worship the Lord our God. The fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, that's Jerusalem. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The Feast of Weeks first comes up in Exodus chapter 19. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 19. Something very important happens at this time in Exodus chapter 19. When Israel came out of Egypt, they came out with a great mixed multitude. Where do we see that in the scripture? A lot of people say that's not in my Bible. It's in Exodus 12. Since we're in Exodus, let's just turn back to 12 to see it's in verse 38. A mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So the mixed multitude are from the other nations of the world. Why would they be in Egypt? Egypt? Egypt had conquered the world, right? So they had slaves from all nations in their borders, and many of them wanted freedom, so they went out when Israel went out. Yeah, sure. We always talk about, yeah, you know how close I am on this stuff, Revelation, Irish, where we said, you know, there are people in heaven from all tribes and tongues and nations. Right. Why couldn't those be people from all tribes and tongues and nations that were with the mixed multitude that were grafted into Israel at that point in time? Why do they have to be? Modern days, because there's a lot more nations today, aren't there? Well, God only thinks of the seventy, right? Or do you think God counts all those? Yeah, God can't count right now. We've got hundred and seventy. So God's wrong, and seventy is not true. She, she wants me to try and encapsulate your question again. In Revelation chapter five, people are singing that we've been redeemed out of every peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, and Mike's saying. Maybe that's just the mixed multitude that I mean, was grafted always, into Israel. We always talk about it as being from all the nations. Newer people, you know, from uh, the rapture, let's say, happens today or whatever. Right. But how, how do we know it's not from those people? Uh, I mean, 
what, what points us to say that it's new people, not old people? I don't know that anybody's ever said it's new people, not old people. Just that it's oh, from all people's tongues and nations. A long time. Actually, actually Revel, to me, Revelation is the end time, which puts it in a, it doesn't put it back in John's name. It, it doesn't say that it just happened now, because we always use that as a proof that the rapture's got, got to happen before Revelation 5, because all those people are up there in heaven. I mean, I'm sure I can find it on our tapes, I can find it on. But wait a minute, now I'm not following. You're saying maybe it's the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt? How did anybody's get up to heaven before the rapture and the resurrection? When Messiah went, didn't he take people with him? Mm, not necessarily from all people's tribes, tongues, and nations. Doesn't tell us that he didn't, though. I mean, all right, all right. We'll just have to. I mean, does it say anything about those people other than it was. You know, a number of the people who were already dead at that point, who were in. I mean, there's no way to say that it is or isn't, right? Okay. So that's just one we'll have to wait and see, I guess. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 16. All right. Let's go back to Exodus 19 then. We are at Mount Sinai. At least we're going to get there in a minute. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So how long have they traveled? So they've traveled 47 days. 47 days. And verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the acceptance of the covenant. A covenant was offered, the people accept it. But does a covenant come into effect at the time that the promises are made? The answer is no, the blood has to be shed. So we have an offer, we have an acceptance, but we don't have the blood shed yet. So, so Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. What's the significance of verse 9? Why wouldn't the people just believe Moses? Hey, the Lord told me all this and here it is. Are there people that would go, Are you sure you didn't just make this stuff up? So the Lord says, I'm going to speak from the clouds so that everyone can hear, and then they will believe you forever. How many of you have heard preachers today say, well, God didn't really give the Torah to Moses. It's called the law of Moses because Moses just sat down and decided to enslave the people. But the Bible does not agree with that position. So, so Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. 
The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So if they travel for 47 days, and the Lord's going to come in three more days, which day does he come? On the 50th day, the day that we now call Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And that's when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, and the people say, tell Moses the rest. And what happens then when Moses comes down off the mountain is he does the sacrifice and sprinkles what with blood? The tablets and the people. That's right. Then in Acts chapter 2. Where is that blood from? I don't recall. What blood or whose blood? Whose blood is, he did an animal sacrifice and sprinkled them with the blood. Oh, I didn't remember that part. Okay. Let's go to Exodus 24. In my Bible, it's called the Mosaic Covenant Ratified. Let's see. That's, but we have to back up from there to verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. That's the same thing they said in Exodus 19, right? Only that was before they heard him. Now they've heard him and they say... We'll do it all. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. This is the third time they've said it. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Yes. I know that this is not all in chronological order, but would this be after the second time where Moses had to carve out the rock and carry him back up the mountain? Um... I don't think so. I think it's the first time. And the golden calf is in chapter 32. But you're right, this section is not necessarily in a good chronological order. Because in chapter 32, it's again talking about him breaking the tablets of the covenant. So, like, like in my mind, it would have been the second time when he came down, when the people that were not rebellious were out of the way. Makes sense. Wait. Yes, Edmund. Um, as we've mentioned the breaking of the, the uh, tablets right. the first time, I've always wondered whether that fact um, annuls the covenant that's been made uh, that it, because in other contexts in other cultures to break the thing is to finish it 
So I've always wondered if it technically that annuls the first time, which is why you have to repeat it. But I don't know what Jewish thinking is on that. I've never heard any Jewish analysis of that. I do look at when he took the second set of tablets up the mountain, God wrote the same words on him, brought it back down, that in essence that is a renewed covenant. So he has First renewed it. Yeah, the first one was broken by the people for sure. Yeah. It's okay to call that as having been broken then. Yeah. Why? Yes, Bill. Uh, verses 9, 10, 11. Of what? Same, right here, Exodus 24. Okay, let me get to Exodus 24. Verses which? 9, 10, 11. 9, 10, 11, go ahead. Uh, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders. Right. And they saw the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, under his feet was the paperwork of sapphire stone. And like was like that very heavens in its clarity yeah but on the nobles of the children of israel he did not lay his hand he didn't slay them okay so they saw god and they ate and drank so uh i'm i'm kind of like trying did they see the very image of god no not not a not a facial features or anything. No, like God says you saw no form, no image. They can see the cloud, they can see the fire burning, they can hear the voice. So you can say they're looking on God, but they're not seeing the image of God. Would be a better rendering of that in English for us. Why do you want a better rendering? Uh, well, mean, to see God, we think in term, we think English, like you said last night. So in Hebrew, what does it mean to see God? He was in the cloud and in the fire. And it says specifically, you saw no face, you saw no form, you saw no image. But they can hear the voice, so they know they're looking upon God. Could it be they saw a vision too? I mean, just... Could it be they saw a vision that's always possible? Saw him sitting on his throne. Yeah. yeah. Abraham saw God. He sat, sat down and ate with him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are instances well, well, of people yeah. seeing God. I think what Moses, or what you ever said, well, he's talking about, boom, God you know, fills the universe, where Abraham saw God specific in a person, or the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua specifically in a person. Um, the disciples saw God, obviously. There's, there are instances where you can't see God because he fills the universe and you ain't that big. You know. Anyhow, there, I think the mystery is it's, it's the, mystery, the mystery of God is that he's everywhere, but he can't behold sin. He's too pure to behold sin. He, there, there are several contradictions that in our frame of reference, they're just contradictions. Our theology says God can't look on sin, but the Bible never says that. Right. And then in our, we're in three dimensions, four dimensions. God is not. Right. And we just can't seem to understand that we, we can't see things like God sees. Right. Them. 
he sees past, present, and future at the same time. No way we can do that. Yeah. God in heaven is the spirit. Yeah. But doesn't it say too when Moses was up on the mountain that like a shadow walked in front of him kind of thing where he didn't actually God covered it and said, you can see my rear porch. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, that wasn't up on the mountain, but yes, there was a time where Moses asked to see, and God said, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover your eyes because you can't see my face. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know that we have an example where he, somebody actually saw his face or saw him. Right. Yeah. Directly, right. I mean, kind of. What, what, what I was in conflict with was where Scripture later on says, no man has seen God. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and maybe maybe no man seen God and lived. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But I'm not trying to take away from, you know, well, let's, let's get back on track as far as I'm concerned. Well, thank you. Let's get back on track. Where is that track? We're talking about... Or not. Okay, go ahead, Mike. On what? I'm sorry? Verse 10. Verse 10 of Exodus 24. Yep, Exodus 24, 10. Yeah, it says, and they saw Tav, the God of Israel, according to Daniel's teaching on the Olive Tav. Mm -hmm. So in Hebrew, that maybe they actually saw Yeshua. Yeah, they saw Yeshua, no doubt. Is he the God of Israel? Absolutely. And did not see the Father. Right. Mm-hmm. Exodus twenty-four seventeen, somebody wants to explain. So Exodus twenty-four seventeen. It says the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. The glory of the Lord refers to the Shekinah glory, that great shining light that you cannot look upon. That Messiah bears in Matthew chapter 17 and in Ezekiel chapter 43. Would anyone like to go to Acts chapter 2? Sure. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 also takes place at Shavuot. Just looking at other places in the scripture where Shavuot is mentioned or where things take place on that day. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost, that is Shavuot, Pentecost is simply the Greek for 50 days, had fully come, which means it is being ultimately fulfilled. When they were all with one accord in one place. So what happened in Exodus chapter 19? Israel was betrothed to God. What happens in Acts chapter 2? The believers become betrothed to God. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The word wind is from the word ruach, which is the same word as spirit. It pictures the Holy Spirit entering the room and filling it completely. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. What came down on the mountain in Exodus 19? Fire. What comes down upon them in Acts chapter 2 verse 3? Fire. And one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, which goes back to Mike's question, because the Jewish nation has been spread apart to all nations. And this is where the believers first get indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and then they go forth to evangelize the world. The next place in scripture we see Shavuot is in Acts chapter 20. All of you are very familiar with Acts chapter 20 verse 7, but not everyone out there in the world is. Acts chapter 20 verse 7 it says, Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, so the disciples are meeting on Sunday morning in their little churches around the world. No, they're not. No, they're not. The Greek does not say the first day of the week. Notice how days in italics. In italics means there's no Greek word that they're getting day from. So you see, the Greek is simply the first of the week. Of those five words, first day of the week, how many of those were actually in the Greek? Oh, that's not quite right. Two. Of the. Of the. The Greek says meaton sabaton on one of the Sabbaths. What Sabbaths? You have to look back to verse 6. We sail from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So what do you do between unleavened bread and Shavuot? You count seven Sabbaths. Now on one of the Sabbaths. When the disciples came together to break bread, it has nothing to do with the church meeting on Sunday morning. Nothing at all. All right, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Verse 12 said, And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Why? Why must we be careful to observe these statutes? Because they rehearse something that's very important to God. So for 1,500 years before Messiah is born, they're rehearsing his death, burial, and resurrection through these. And that makes them very special to God. Verse 13 begins the next festival. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered. What does have gathered mean? It means the crops in. It means the crops are in. From your threshing floor, that's the wheat and the barley, all the grains. And from your wine press, that's the grape harvest. <laughs> What does the harvest in Israel picture? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. The discussion of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, which teach the Lord's first coming, they're complete at the end of verse 21. At the end of verse 21, it says, It shall be a statute forever to all your dwellings throughout your generations. So Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks are a statute forever. God considers them a unit because they take the first coming from the death to the burial to the resurrection to the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the believers. 
And then the fall feast, the fall appointed times begin in verse 23. So what's in verse 22? It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I'm the Lord your God. So in the midst of a chapter dedicated to the appointed times of God, he takes a verse to talk about, well, let's talk about harvest. How do we do the harvest? Why? Because what began at Shavuot? That began the wheat harvest, the gospel going out to the world to bring in all the believers into the kingdom. Remember Messiah said in the book of John, don't tell me there's yet three months till the harvest. I tell you the wheat's already white in the fields. Meaning there's people out there ready to be brought into the kingdom. Go get them. But the harvest in Israel is in three parts. You've got the first fruits. If they're picturing bringing people into the kingdom, who are the first fruits of the resurrection? That's Messiah and those that were resurrected with him in Matthew 27. The main harvest, that's Revelation chapter 4, Isaiah 26, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All those teach about the main harvest. Then what about the gleanings? Those are at the end of the tribulation for all those saved during the tribulation that died as martyrs. So God likens the bringing of people into the kingdom through the rapture and the resurrection and all that being like the harvest in Israel. Well, what about verse 23, which begins the Feast of Trumpets and then the Day of Atonement? Why does God skip straight to the Feast of Tabernacles? Trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles in God's eyes are all one feast because they all teach about the second coming of the Lord. That's exactly right. What's another name for the Feast of Tabernacles? There's many. Feast of all nations. Turn to Zechariah 14, 16. We know from Isaiah and Ezekiel, etc., that we're going to keep all of the feasts and festivals throughout eternity. But there's a special emphasis on the Feast of Tabernacles in Zechariah 14, verse 16. Zechariah 14 covers the seven years of the tribulation period from verse 1 to 15. At the end of verse 15, the tribulation period is over, the Battle of Armageddon's done. And Messiah is seated on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem. It says in verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So where all the nations were to keep all of the feasts and festivals, there's one particular set apart in Zechariah 14, 16. That wherever you are in the world, you must come up for this one. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verse 4, we see a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Matthew 17, if you remember, is the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 4. Seventeen one says, now after six days, picturing 6,000 years from creation to the day of the Lord, they see in a vision Messiah come, transfigured, that is, bearing the Shekinah glory of God, as in Ezekiel chapter 43. And Peter's response in verse 4 is to say, then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles for you. Three Sukkot for you. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why would Peter suggest we should make Sukkot for each of the three? Because the Feast of Tabernacles teaches Messiah establishing the kingdom on earth. So they associate this vision with the Feast of Tabernacles. Back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 16. Verse 13 said, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast. What's another term for tabernacles? The season of our joy. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger just like in verse 11 with the spring festivals the fall festivals are for everyone the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the lord your god in the place which the lord chooses that's jerusalem because the lord your god will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice what is that emphasis on surely rejoicing? What kind of word does surely come from? It's an infinitive of emphasis, which literally says in Hebrew, rejoicing you shall rejoice. Let's see. Okay. Where else in Scripture do we read about the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, in Revelation 21, the Lord says that he's going to tabernacle with men. In Revelation 21, he says he will tabernacle with men. John 1 says that he came and tabernacled with us. John 1, verse 14, he came and tabernacled with us. Sure. The point is, there's many. Let's turn to John chapter 7. There's many. And that's my point. The fact that there's many means that there is significance to them. And that's the reason God refers to them all through the scriptures. In John chapter 7, verse 37, something very significant happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, that's the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, 
It's got a special name. It's called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. It says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Why does he say this? What's going on at the temple at the time? He's at the temple. That's the Simchat Beit HaShoivah ceremony. They've gone down to the pool of Siloam. What does the word Siloam mean? The sent one. Mm -hmm. And they bring the water up, and it's the only time they pour out water at the altar. They pour out the water while praying to God and asking for what? For rain, but what do they call it? The life-giving waters. The living waters. So he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as they're pouring actual literal water from the pool of Siloam, Messiah says there's more to this ceremony than you have realized. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Is our heart going to open up and water start gushing out on the floor? No. It's the Holy Spirit, verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So how do the believers in Messiah exude this living water? By bringing others to the Lord? Yes, it's talking about evangelism. Going out and bringing others to the Lord bringing them to the point of salvation so they too can receive the living water. And then they can go share. And then those people can go share. And a gospel message can go out to the world. There are many others, but that's sufficient, I think. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 16. Wait. Yes, some. We were back on Matthew 17. Tabernacles. Uh huh. And the verse where it says um, Peter was speaking, and he was approaching this from a physical standpoint. What his physical eyes wanted to do for Sukkot, which was the tents. And even while it says, even while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, a voice came out of the cloud. And what the, I saw was that this is, this was even then the Lord was saying, no, it's, it's not in the physical realm. My Shekinah glory, his Shekinah glory came down and actually they, the Lord gave that to them in that instance. And now here we are with these other verses and it keeps circling back to what the Feast of Tabernacles was really all about is that he dwells with us. Emmanuel. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. So many portions of the scripture bring us, keep, back, keep bringing us back to the same point. Yes. Yeah, very true. Right. Yes, sir. Just a comment on living water uh, and what it signifies. Um, Jesus at the well with the woman says uh, it'll be living water springing up to eternal life. So I think there's a tie in there as well. Sure. Same thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Those who receive the Holy Spirit have eternal life. Yep. Lots of these things tie together. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 16 to verse 16. 
And God's going to tell us why these feasts and festivals, these appointed times of the Lord, are so important. How important are they? So important he keeps going over them. So important he keeps going over them again and again. Yes? And they're to be observed forever. They're to be observed forever. It's got to be pretty important. Yeah. When were they first mentioned in Scripture? In Genesis 1.14. So let's keep a finger in Deuteronomy and go back to Genesis 1.14. How many Jews were there in the world in Genesis 1.14? None. How many people were there? None. In verse 14, we haven't come to the sixth day yet. Adam's not made till the sixth day. So this precedes all of humanity. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. That word seasons is not the Hebrew word season. Hebrew word season is zaman, Z-E-M-A-N. This is Moedim. These are the appointed times. So when God put the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, it was so that we would know when these appointed times of the Lord fall. We would know when Passover is, unleavened bread, first fruits, etc. So God had these planned before man was ever created. So the, the word for seasons is uh, Zion? Zion? Word for season, singular, is Zaman. Z-E-M-A-N. Thank you. We sang it in the song today, in the Shehecheyanu. Pick, pick up your books and turn to the Shehecheyanu. At the end of page 9, and look at the last four lines. Three times it says, Lazman, Hazeh. Lazman is to the season. So there's three words in there. The Zaman, which is the Z-M-O-N, is the season. Lazman has that to this season. Okay. Yes, sir. It, it seems to me that the, if I was looking at, at you know, the culture of the Bible, like an anthropologist, right? I, yes. I always think God set up the ideal society um, to receive the Messiah at the right time. Right. So we can learn how a society ought to work by looking at it, okay? Okay. Well then, it seems to me that the appointed times are like the, the tracks, like a railway track, to keep you online. They repeat themselves so that if there's any sense of deviating, come back to the tracks that have been laid down to keep the culture in the right space. So keeping us on God's way instead of branching out yeah. to the left or the right. Yeah. Yeah. So how many times were these feasts and festivals to be celebrated? Every tenth year? Every hundredth year? Every year. Every year. So as Edmund says, to bring us back on the track, like on a railroad track, keeping us on the straight and narrow keeping us focused on Messiah's first coming and his second coming. How do we know that God will fulfill the second coming? 
Joel says because he fulfilled the first one. How did he fulfill the first coming? Sort of about? Precisely. Precisely, down to the very hour. Okay, now Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, tells us why it should be really important to Israel as they're living in the land after they cross over the river into the promised land. Verse 16 says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so in God's eyes, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits are one festival. At the Feast of Weeks, that's when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. In his eyes, that's a festival. At the Feast of Tabernacles, which includes the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles itself. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So does that mean when you come to the feast, you bring lots of gold to put in my offering plate? No. It means when you go up to celebrate the feasts and festivals, you bring enough food with you to share with the poor. So that everyone, from the richest to the poorest, can celebrate and worship God together. Verse 17 says, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Now go to Exodus 23. As God continues to explain the significance and the motivations for keeping these festivals, these appointed times. Exodus 23, verse 14. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, that's Shavuot, the feast of weeks. The first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering, that's tabernacles or Sukkot, at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Now to Exodus 34. Yes, ma'am. How many people around here sow in their fields? You don't plant anything in your garden? What do you put in your garden? You plant flowers. Okay. I grew up on a farm. We actually planted wheat and stuff. I, I guess we're a little spoiled these days. If if you go out to Nebraska or out to Texas and see wheat fields from one end of the earth to the other, there's still people who plant. Oh, how do you apply this? You planting, you harvesting, etc. You don't live in the land of Israel. It was only those who lived in the land of Israel that brought their crops up their first fruits up to the temple mount 
It was because God gave them this land. God provides the food out of this land which is his. And in return, you take a tenth of it and you return it back to him by giving it to the priests, the Levites, the poor, the widows, the orphans. Back in those days, yeah. Otherwise, you didn't eat. You could run down to Costco, I guess, but, well, no, they didn't have them. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So you don't have to take your firstborn lamb up to Jerusalem. Well, okay, so That's there, correct. I got a question on that. Just, okay. Just that I understand the agricultural life because I've lived it. So it's that we don't have to, but we will we get to maybe one of these days. Right. Or if we have a garden space or whatever is there anything that we can do in those little, those garden spaces as unto the lord even though we're not in the land yet you can do anything you want to unto the lord her question was what do i have to do yeah so that's different some of these commandments like taking your first fruits up to the altar in Jerusalem are things that apply only when you're in the land and only when there's a temple which there will be soon Bill are we going to take another Ibex trail no sir I think it ties in okay everything. Uh, if you said a little bit ago about the feast of trumpets the day of atonement and tabernacles which is the seventh month Tishri the first day and then the 10th day, and then the 15th through the 27th day. Uh, that, so that season, and those are the days when everybody goes to Jerusalem. Everybody men, in the land, all the men would the go up to Jerusalem. to Jerusalem. The women so, and children would come to if they were able. Right. So that makes sense to me why when Mary and Joseph came to pay the tax when they couldn't find a room at the end because there were so many people coming for this season the whole month most likely mm -hmm. you know people coming and going people coming and going people coming and going you know i don't know if they had reservations or if it was first come first serve type attitude probably more likely probably and more likely that that's why you know they had to dwell in a tabernacle not in some animal barn right you know and and it's it just when when that when you said that a minute ago and then I looked at this uh, listing here in, in my Bible and then I saw them all three together and I saw it, uh, it puts it together where I did in my mind about that whole month season Yes, they would go up on the first day of Tishri and stay for a little over three weeks. Because you don't want to go home, come back, go home, come back, go home, come back. From Nazareth to Jerusalem is 75 miles, and you're walking it. How many times do you want to walk that? Right. And that, and, and that goes to previous where God said, you come up and do this, and nobody's going to desire your place. Right. Because you're going to be gone a month. Right, right. We haven't got to that verse, but we're about to. Okay. But you're right. When Messiah was born, 
Joseph could have taken Mary down to Bethlehem at any point in the year to do that. Would you make an extra walking trip 75 miles each way, or would you go when you had to go anyway? Making it good, buddy. Yeah, you go when you have to go anyway. And that's why there was no room at the end, because Jerusalem can't hold all the pilgrims. They're shared between Jerusalem, Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem, the three bedroom communities around Jerusalem. And all the rooms were full. And the hillsides were full of sukkahs, weren't they? Yeah. And this was a great blessing to Mary because if she'd given birth in the inn, the inn is one big room with the travelers sleeping all around the floor. Here's this young virgin girl giving birth in a room full of strangers. How would you like that? No. The sukkah out by yourself was a much more private, better thing. So people say, did God forget to make a reservation? No, God didn't forget anything. <laughs> Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. Here's what we've been building to. God's promise. That if you will keep these three pilgrim festivals, these three shlosh regalim. It says in Exodus 34 beginning in verse 13. No. 23. Three times in a year all your men shall appear before the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel. That's an interesting phraseology there. The first Lord is Adonai. The second Lord is the Tetragrammaton. And God is Elohim. Four, because I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. If they would simply have kept the pilgrim festivals... As God commanded, would they have ever gone into captivity? No. Would their land have been attacked by outsiders trying to take it? The answer is no. When they went up to Jerusalem, did they have to worry that somebody would come and steal everything from their houses and their lands? The answer is no. So when we failed to keep the pilgrim festivals, it cost us a great deal. This is a big step of faith for people. They have to put their trust in God that God will protect their property while they're gone for three plus weeks at a time. Plus there were travel days getting up and back. How long would it take them to walk 75 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem? Six or three days. Would take a long time, wouldn't it? If you could get 20 miles in a day, that's humping it. That's yeah. moving. Yeah. You get 20 miles in a day. Military. And the village would go up all at a time. The okay. men would be walking together. The women would be walking together. The children would be walking together. That's why when Messiah was 12, they get halfway home, and then they realize that Messiah is not with them because they figured he was with the children. And when, at night when you go to camp, then the kids would go camp with their parents, and he's not around. I like Daniel's uh, insight, and I, and I agree with that. I thought about it myself. About uh, it takes a lot of faith. It to, does to do to obey the Lord and not worry about our possessions. Well, I've gone through enough in my life now at this age that I have lost a lot of my possessions, and the Lord—not that I was 
prideful about it or anything, but we tend to look at it with our physical eyes and say it's, it's my car, my land, my house, my whatever. Fill in the blank. But if we have faith, we, we need to turn that over to the Lord and say, these are not my possessions. These are yours, Lord. And I'm just being a, um, what do you call it? A, a sojourner. Well, a pilgrim. No, 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 no. Steward to, a steward. That's what I was saying. Yeah. A steward of, of the things that he has given me. Mm -hmm. You're and, absolutely right. And I can give them away. I can, you know, whatever I, but to let go of that. And then that builds our faith to say, Lord, it's yours anyway. It'll yeah. be done. Absolutely. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 16. Verse 17. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. What do you think would happen if you go up to the festival and you don't give anything to the poor? You say, mine, mine, mine. Do you think you're going to get really blessed the next year? You're probably not going to be blessed that year. You're <laughs> probably going to be getting grumpier and grumpier as you go through that. Perhaps. Yep. Now, verses 18 to 20 completely change topic. Remember, Moses is a few days from death, and he's trying to get across to the children of Israel every point from the Torah that he thinks they need to keep in mind on a daily basis. So in verse 18 it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. So when you establish a town like Obethel, you have to, at the city gates, appoint officers who will sit as judges. So when people have complaints this person wronged me, they can come to the judges and put forth their petitions, bring forth their proofs, etc. And then what standard are the judges supposed to use? The Torah. Are supposed to use the Torah. The Torah is made up of commandments, statutes, and judgments, where God has said, in this case, this is the judgment you give. And notice this with just judgment. How does God feel about bribes? Look at verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. God requires the judges of the land to administer justice without partiality. Just like in our country here, right? Uh, we have the best judges money can buy. Yeah, Exodus 23, 8. Exodus 23, 8. We're going to find that this is a frequent topic for the Lord. In Exodus 23, 8, it says, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Go to Deuteronomy 10.
Uh-oh, I got some red numbers out there. Let me go look. God bless you. God bless you, yeah. So the answer to your question, Danny and Susie, is we, when we approach the feasts and festivals, we do the portions that we can do. That's what we do. Okay, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Did we read that one? Okay. I'm still confused about that question from Susie and, and Danny. Because is there a list of things that, as believers... I've heard people, Messianics in Israel, say, you guys in America don't live here, you don't have to keep this. So I don't understand, is there a yes for Americans and yes for Israelis to keep? There, there are portions of the commandments that apply only when you're in the land. So there are portions of the commandments that we do not have to follow. For instance, at the Feast of Tabernacles, who's required to live in a sukkah? Those that were native born in the land of Israel, they're required to. Those of us outside the land of Israel, we are not required to. We can, but we don't have to. So we keep the portions we can, and the portions that don't apply to us, we just remember. We study about them so that we know how they teach about Messiah. Okay, Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. So when you are judging in the gates of the cities of Israel, you're sitting in place of God. That is, he's delegated to you a portion of his authority. And how does he expect you to exercise that authority? in the way that he would. God takes no bribes. God shows no partiality. And he expects the human judges on earth to judge accordingly. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as soon as you get there, put a finger there. Let me further answer the questions that Susie has asked and that Penny has followed up on. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What was the question? The question comes down to we're confused about what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do since we don't live in the land of Israel. She says there are believers in the land of Israel that say we outside of Israel don't need to worry about any of it. We don't need to keep the feasts and festivals. We don't need to do anything with them. So go to 1 Corinthians 5 and see if the Bible bears that out. 1 Corinthians 5 was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, 
which were made up of people who came out of which world? The Jewish world or the Gentile world? The Gentile world. How do you know? 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, you know that you were Gentiles. Do they live in the land of Israel? Where is Corinth? It's in Greece. Okay. So these are Gentile believers outside the land of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, it says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What feast is he telling us to keep? Passover. Passover. But we're not Jews, and we're not born in the land. And we're, not even in the land. and we're not even in the land, but what does it say? Let us keep the feast. Did we take a lamb from Corinth to Jerusalem to sacrifice it on the 14th and bring it back to Greece? No, we didn't do that portion, but we still had the Passover Seder because it teaches about the Lord and his death, burial, and resurrection. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Kind of rather generous of people to tell us we don't have to obey the Lord. Well, <laughs> it's just their interpretations. Well, and, and back, I think, I don't remember which, but Exodus, Leviticus, one another, it, it, say if the distance is too great for you to go to Jerusalem, you could make kill the Passover in your own? No, it does land. not. <laughs> On the tithe, it says if it's too far to take the tithe up to Jerusalem, you can sell the tithe, take the money up to Jerusalem, and buy replacement food. That's not the Passover lamb. So that's talking over the farmers there in a, in a district, and they might have a couple of wagon loads to bring in, which is not convenient. So convert that, yeah. bring your offering. Right. So what would the people from Nazareth do? when it was time for Passover. They would go up to Jerusalem and buy a lamb in Jerusalem. They wouldn't try and carry a lamb on their shoulders for 75 miles. Right, right. But you cannot sacrifice the Passover at home. Okay. okay. So, so then back at First Corinthians, to keep the feast, they're going to have to get up and go. No, they were going to celebrate it there in Corinth. They're just not going to sacrifice a lamb. When he says Messiah is our Passover, the word Passover there means the lamb. So you don't have to sacrifice a lamb. Messiah has already taken care of that. So they would have the Passover Seder like we do here. You've been to our Seders, right? Did we sacrifice a lamb in the parking lot? No, we did not. We got it. Yes, sir? The first fruits of the flock, you say? The firstborn of the flock. The firstborn of the flock. They took them to Jerusalem if it was not too far. If it was too far, they would convert it to money and then buy replacement animals up in Jerusalem. Thank you. Yep. All right. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8. At least I am. Hopefully you are too. 
verses 1 to 3. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He anointed Saul and David as king. But here's why. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Beersheba is a city. God said, appoint judges. They're appointed judges. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. That's when the people start demanding a king. They don't want judges anymore because the sons of Samuel did not act like their father. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Go to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 23. Does the Bible describe a wicked man as being a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. It says a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. So if you're a judge taking a bribe, God puts you in the category of the wicked man. Have any of you ever had to be a judge? It's not a a very easy job. It is not. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, God brings his list of charges against the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Are those serious charges? Yeah. Those are serious charges. And what's about to hit? Mm -hmm. Captivity. Captivity. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 23. In Isaiah 5, people want to call evil good and good evil, unlike today in America. Totally. Isaiah chapter 5, again, just four chapters later from Isaiah 1 verse 23, is Isaiah 5 23. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Who's supposed to win a court case, the rich man or the poor man? Whoever's right. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they're pretty, whether they're ugly, whether they're tall, whether they're short. It's who is right. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Verse 12.
The top of my Bible on this page has a title, The Day of the Lord. So we're going to see how the state of the nation of Israel will be when it's time for Messiah to return. Amos 5.12 says, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. How much have things changed over the past 3,500 years? Very little. Very little. When it comes to the heart of man. How about Micah chapter 3? Right before Nahum is Micah. From Micha, who is like. You know, Micah chapter 4 is about the day of the Lord. So Micah chapter 3 must be talking about latter times. Says her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. So what does verse 11 really say? They're walking in sin and believing that the Lord is going to bless them beyond measure. How does that work out for them? Read the next verse. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare forests, bare hills of the forest. Did that literally happen in 70 AD? It literally did. What if the judges had been righteous and holy? The prophets speaking truly the word of God, the people keeping the feasts and festivals, keeping Shabbat and worshiping the Lord with their whole hearts. Jerusalem would not have been destroyed. The temple would not have been destroyed. We'd still be lost because Messiah wouldn't have been crucified. Yep. Also in Micah, chapter 7. Does God hear the prayers of the wicked? According to Proverbs 28, verse 9. Their prayers are an abomination. Micah chapter 7, verse 3. That they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. What does conduct like that bring upon a people? Shame. Judgment. Shame and judgment. Indeed. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 16. 
there are nations where that's the whole way things are done. There are nations where that's the way things are done. You're correct. And isn't that a shame? Yeah. Yeah? You can't even travel without keeping some money to put in the map to bribe the officers checking you along the way. Yeah. Verse 20. You shall follow what is altogether just. What's altogether just mean? Actually, really just, right? That you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And then verse 21 changes topic again. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. How many of you have seen pictures of churches around this time of year and up on the pulpit they have big Christmas trees on either side? What does God say about putting these evergreen trees near his places of worship? Don't do it. It's an abomination. No trees near the altar. But you know, they don't even... They don't even give us the right notion here in verse 21. Do you see as a wooden image? Yeah. The Hebrew is an Asherah. Yeah. Wayne, what scripture are you at right now? What? what scripture? scripture? Right now? Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21. Oh, but I see there's a red number one here. Let's see. Yep, as Sue says, there's Jewish calendars available at Amazon.com for $14, but you guys know I'll send you out an email with all the dates, probably eight or ten times before we get through the year. That's just the way it goes. Yes, that's an Asherah. Why did the people worship under evergreen trees? Sexual immorality, and it goes all the way back to Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, who showed the people that she was the true queen of heaven and the goddess of life and death by having the people cut down an evergreen tree in the spring. She said she caused it to sprout again. So ever since then, that's been a symbol of the worship of these pagan idols. Verse 22 is like verse 21. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. The sacred pillars were put up to indicate which pagan God a nation serves. He said, just don't do that. Let's go to Exodus 23, verse 24. Exodus 23, 24 is specifically about the sacred pillars. It says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. You've all seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? With Charlton Heston. As the multitudes are leaving Egypt, they go a short distance from the walls of the city, and then there are pillars on both sides of the road. Remember those? 
Those pillars are to show what gods the nation of Egypt serves. So God says, don't set up those kind of pillars. Is it significant where you see on those carved images where the nose has been broken off? Is that significant? Some of them were broken off over time, and some of them were broken off by believers in later centuries where God said, don't have any graven images. So they were trying to desecrate the, the pagan images. Exodus 34, 14. Can't we just have a few pagan idols around? Exodus 34, 14 tells us why we should not do that. It says, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, there's the tetragrammaton, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. It doesn't mean he actually has the name Jealous tattooed on his shirts, right? The word name also refers to character. That God's nature, his character, is to be jealous when people worship other gods instead of him. Why should he worry about it if you want to worship a foreign god? Because there is no other god but him. So in the northern kingdom of Israel, whenever the crops would come in and God would bless them bountifully, they would immediately go make sacrifices to Baal and Ishtar to thank them for the crops. And God's saying, what about me? He should have made the crops just burn up then. <laughs> and what happened then? The rain stopped and the famine set in. And the famine stayed until when? When did the rains return? Do you remember? When Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and the kings of Israel said, hmm, maybe we've been worshiping the wrong God. Then the clouds returned. Leviticus 26. Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal, by the way, is in 1 Kings chapter 18. For those of you who are taking notes. Leviticus 26.1 You shall not make idols for yourselves. Do you think that's a suggestion? Uh, no. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you what? Rain, Rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So was God right when he stopped the rains in the northern kingdom of Israel? When they gave praise for the crops to Baal and Ishtar, he absolutely was. In verse 1, there's so much emphasis in God saying, Idols you make, idols you set up. Yeah, they had to make them and carry them around. 
Right. Those idols aren't going anywhere by themselves. Except in the case of Dagon, where it kept falling on its face. But, no. but, you know, God's essentially saying, y'all are so stupid that you're having to make this God and then you're bowing down to it. Yeah. You can serve the true and living God. Does he ridicule the people in Isaiah say, you plant a tree, then you cut it down. You make half of it into a God and you burn the rest of it to warm yourself and make dinner. Yeah, he called them stupid. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5. Because of the earlier um, discussions, let me ask, does the prohibition against idolatry apply outside the land of Israel? Absolutely. Just ask Dagon. Except he can't answer. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Holy means what? Set apart to God, different from the world, not to follow in the ways of the pagans. But wait a minute. Didn't Paul... In the book of Ephesians, tell us to continue to walk like Gentiles. Really? Let's go look at Ephesians chapter 4. We'll find that Daniel is absolutely correct. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. There's some verses in the Bible that just leap off the page to me, and this is one. Leaps off the page and slaps me on both cheeks. One of those. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. That means it's really true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, in the world in those days, there were Gentiles and there were Jews. If we're not to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk, does that mean we keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God? That is what it means. Go down to verse 22 of the same chapter, Ephesians 4. That you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Give me a verse. 1 John 3, 4. Let me see what these two red marks out here are. Um... Julie warns that not all the calendars out there have the correct festivals on the correct dates. That's right. All right. Back to... Yes, Sam? Um, so, that was the verse I was looking for was... 
Ephesians, uh, we just read. Ephesians, we're just read in chapter, chapter 4, 17 to 23. Through 23. Right? And people are not necessarily stupid. They may be lazy. Um, they may be all the different things you want to call them. But, I don't want to call them bad names. But if they're, <laughs> but if, well, they're foolish because they're not renewing their minds. And if they call themselves a Christian or a believer, but they're not renewing their mind and keeping the commandments here and keeping it in their heart, then they're willfully disobeying. True. call it lukewarm. Yeah, you might call it lukewarm. Now, the last comment out here, let me make a response to it. Somebody says that those in the modern church with the Christmas trees up there on the stages don't recognize it as being idolatry. That's true. But does Deuteronomy 12 say specifically in two different places, don't do that? Don't take those things which they used to worship their pagan gods and use them to worship me? Yes. So whether they recognize that the Christmas tree has a pagan origin or not, God said don't use what they use to worship me. So, so in, in that case, the false doctrine is expressed today, whereas if somebody reads that and question, gives a, poses a question to their leader, then the leader says, well, that's done away with because that was just for those people in the land there. You know, that's not true. That, so they're going on where scripture says that those who believe the lie you know, is not going to inherit. Yep. Agreed. So back to Deuteronomy. We're still in verses 21 to 22. Looking at the comments on it. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 14. And see what happened when people fail to keep God's warnings here. How did God react? 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also perverted persons in the land, talking about homosexuals. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So when Israel started adopting all the sinful practices of the Canaanites, whom God cast out of the land, what happened to Israel? They got cast out of the land into captivity. That particular portion of land, God says, is his portion. And he will give it to whom he chooses. And those to whom he gives it must worship him and him alone. So if you start cutting crashes in the walls of the temple, you know that your nation is about to fall. How is that any different than the Christmas tree on the uh, inside the church? Not. Not. Second Kings chapter 17. 
If you read Matthew chapter 7, you notice that there are people standing before the Lord on Judgment Day that are absolutely shocked. They thought they were saved. And they find out they were not. What can they do about it at that point? Absolutely nothing. 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 9. You know what, we may as well start in 6. Verse 9 explains, verse 6, why it happened. Verse 6 says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. This is the Assyrian captivity. It started in 722 BCE and it's not over yet. And placed them in Hala by the, Har- by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up by the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right, and they built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols. At which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah, By all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn. What is that word in Hebrew? Shuvu. It's a command. It means to repent. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the Torah, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks. Stiff in their necks indicates a choice, a conscious decision. The more the prophets preached repentance, the more they said, no, you can't make us. It says, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molten image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. It goes on and on. Go to Micah chapter 5. So there in 2 Kings 17, God was explaining why the northern kingdom of Israel is no more. They were taken into captivity 2,700 years ago, and they're still in captivity. Many of us here in this country are probably descendants of those northern ten tribes. 
DNA testing won't tell you if you're from the 10 northern tribes because they truly are lost. They have no, nothing to compare it against. So Micah chapter 5, verses 10 to 15. Whoops, let me look. I got a red number one out here while you're turning. No. Cassandra asks, is the altar and the pulpit in the church the same thing? The answer is no. But the altar is the place where you worship God, and that's what the pulpit in the church is supposed to be. So it's analogous, but it's not the same thing. Please no one come up and sacrifice a lamb on my table. Micah chapter 5, and of course, she would never suggest that. Verses 10 to 15. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots, which is destroying the military might. I will cut off the cities off your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst, thus I will destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. So is this prophecy against only Israel? No, it's against the nations of the world. So the fact that we're not in Israel, does that mean we can have carved images and sacred pillars and worship idols? The answer is no, 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 absolutely not. So let's start chapter 17, Deuteronomy 17. Oh. We ready? Yep. Chapter 17 changes topics entirely. And it's a group of individual commandments that they just chose to put together into a chapter. Remember, the original has no chapter and verse breaks. It's just a run of text. So verse 1 says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Why? If I got a sick lamb, I don't want to eat it. Why can't I go give it to the Lord? You guys look at me like I'm stupid. Yeah, okay. So that was the stupid thing. What do the sacrifices teach us about? Messiah. Messiah is without spot or blemish. So if the sacrifice is to teach us about Messiah, it also must be without spot or blemish. So no molds, no warts, no cuts. It's got to be in good shape. Yeah. yeah. If the dog's attacked and it's laying half in two, no. Okay. Let's go first to Ephesians chapter 5. Not only are the sacrifices required to be without blemish, 
But that's the way God wants his bride to be, is without spot or blemish. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What does a blemish represent? Sin. Represents sin. Does God want his bride to be a sinful, dirty bride? The answer is no. So what does that require then? It requires repentance. Let's look at Revelation chapter 19. Right before Messiah returns, it describes the bride. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, which is transliterated, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. Just for grins, in verse 6, when it says the sound is as of many waters. Whose voice is that? It's Messiah. And yet it says, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So who is the Lord God omnipotent? It's Yeshua. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So does God want us stained with sins? are clothed in the righteous acts of the saints. And how are saints described in Revelation 14, 7? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Messiah. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. What comes right before verse 17? <laughs> Be holy, for I am holy. Yes, it, it is verse 16. You're right. Yeah. Be holy, for I am holy is quoted from where? From Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 to 45. What's Leviticus 11 about? Food, clean and unclean food. Verse 17 says, and... 
If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, with the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And 2 Peter chapter 2. Verses 12 to 17. Referring to the false teachers. It says, and, But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. What were the wages of unrighteousness? Was gold and silver from Balak. So why did he try and corrupt the children of Israel? For money. But he was rebuked for his inquiry. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. They're wells without water. What do they mean? They promise the living water, but what do they deliver? Nothing. Clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It almost sounds like Peter doesn't want us to follow these false teachers, huh? What did he say in verse 13? They are spots and blemishes. They're not like Messiah, who's the spotless Lamb of God. They lead people off into sin because they want the income, the money. They want the wealth. They want the power. The other part of verse 1, let's go back to Deuteronomy 17, verse 1. So we finished this verse. Sorry, I've gone over a couple of minutes. God bless you. If you remind me next week, I'll quit a couple of minutes early. But the end of verse 1 was, For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. When you see the word abomination, it refers to a sin that is one that would sicken God's stomach, if you will. Let's go to Leviticus 18. There's some people who say every sin is the same in the eyes of God. No, there's some that God calls an abomination. They are particularly disgusting in his sight. Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God wait till the day of the Lord to bring judgment? 
Nope. Now, he just wiped them out in Genesis chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. This is the next time I saw abomination. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Deuteronomy 12, 31. Is homosexuality the only abomination? No, 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 of course not. They were just the ones that came across first. Deuteronomy 12, 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Abortion is an abomination. Child sacrifice an abomination. Did Israel ever get involved in such things? Yep. Yeah. Deuteronomy 12, though, right? Yeah. Yes, that's Deuteronomy 12. So then that includes all the things don't, don't worship me the way they worship their gods. Yes. So it's all the Christmas, Ishtar, all that crap. All that stuff, yep. Yeah. When it says um, every abomination or she hates is not just one. Yeah, I just want to make yeah. sure we weren't focusing on one because I thought it was the whole. Yeah, you're right. It's the whole shebang. Deuteronomy 14.3. You shall not eat any detestable thing. The Hebrews actually, you shall not eat any abominable thing. So the unclean foods of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, they're all in God's eyes an abomination. And if you eat them, what do you become in God's eyes? You become abominable. Is that something you want to be? Standing before the Lord on Judgment Day? No. You know, one thing I was seeing as we were going through those verses about homosexuality mm -hmm. is that that's an abomination to the Lord because of, how do I want to word this? Because of what it entails and all the other sins that come along with that. I'm and because saying, God said marriage is... Like this, this is the worst one. That's, the, you know, that's not as bad as the other ones. But it perverts God's creation. Yep. His purpose in creation was to replenish the earth. Yep. Not, right. not to go into a... But, but it also gets into where, where what's, what people are learning about now with the human trafficking and the sacrificing. And, and uh, disgusting. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, but one more verse... Oh, actually, five more verses. Deuteronomy 22.5. Here's another sin that God calls an abomination. And see if any of this reminds you of television today. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. This is cross-dressing. How does God feel about cross-dressing? It's an abomination. It's a detestable thing in God's eyes. <clears throat> I haven't eaten lunch yet. Be careful. Deuteronomy 23, verse 18. Deuteronomy 23, verse 18. We'll read 17 and 18 together. 
prostitution. Verse 17 says, There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog. These are homosexual prostitutes as well as heterosexual prostitutes to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Is prostitution okay? Hey, oh, they're just loving one another. God says it's an abomination. 1 Kings 14. Isn't that the argument you keep hearing? But they're just loving each other. And what's the big push going on in the courts right now? Have you been following it? They're trying to make pedophilia legal. Yep, why shouldn't we be allowed to sexually abuse children? We're just loving them. Give me a break. First Kings 14, I know they're already doing it. They're just trying to make it legal. Yeah. Wayne, we really need to remember to pray for the younger generation, the parents who are taking their 5 to 12 and 14-year-olds to these, um, um, oh, I just lost the term, where they cross-dress. Yeah, I know. Thank you, the drag queen stuff. And yep. pray for the parents because they, they think that, that it's okay. Yeah. So let's do the two more verses, then we can close in prayer, and then we can talk all we like. First Kings 14, 24. And there were also perverted persons, talking about homosexuals and sexually immoral, in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So again, this is as they're about to be exiled from the land. Second Chronicles 28.3 is our last verse for today. Second Chronicles 28.3. This is about King Ahaz. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley is there south of Jerusalem. Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna in the Greek, Gehinom in Hebrew. It says, and burned his children in the fire. Talk about King Ahaz sacrifice his children by burning them in the fire to Moloch in the Hinnom Valley, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Child sacrifice, killing the innocent, God calls an abomination. Let's close in prayer. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 2.